And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Small Biz Matters here at the Triple H Studios. In Sydney, 100.1 FM is where you're listening, although you might be struggling to listen on the airways today because yesterday our transmitter was struck by lightning. That's right. So we are not actually broadcasting on the airways. If you're hearing us on a radio, um, you are magical. Uh, but those of you who are listening online, welcome to the program. And those of you who will be listening um, via our podcast, of course, available on smallbizmatters.com.au or wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, welcome to the program as well. Now, today we're going to be speaking to Ursula Hogburn, who is uh, one of our shining lights in the small business legal world. Uh, she was one of the founders of Legal Vision and is a proud advocate for small business everywhere. She's an expert when it comes to supporting small businesses in their legal journey, someone that you probably should engage with at a point when you don't need a lawyer, when you're relaxed and you haven't got, um, you've got the opportunity to think about ways that you might need to strengthen your legal relationships with your key stakeholders in your business. Not necessarily when everything goes to the proverbial and you need uh, someone urgently. So have a think about what we're going to be chatting about today, which is um, what aspects of your business might need a little bit of legal tightening up where do you might where do you think you might need some contracts put in place to support your business but don't forget about the fact that it's not just your business you're supporting in a legal capacity quite often we all have our own uh, private assets on the line such as our home or perhaps you've got large loans uh, linked to your business and this is another way to make sure that you are protected it also keeps the insurance uh, companies pretty happy too if you've got some robust agreements in place with your key stakeholders and welcome everybody to Triple H 100.1 FM. You're back in the studio with Alexi and Small Biz Matters. Thank you for joining me today. We've got a jam-packed show. We're going to be cramming in lots and lots of fabulous small business education today. And we're going to talk a lot about the legal side of running a business. Now, you know, we talk a lot about uh, surrounding ourselves with advisors on the program and good advisors, people who have been recommended to you, particularly by those who are maybe mentors of yours in the industry. But it's very important that, you know, you have accountants and you have financial advisors and people who really know your industry to help you. But quite often we don't include in that a legal advisor, a legal counsel, if you will. And that's actually really, really important. We often don't consider um, actioning a, a relationship with a legal advisor until we were in the poo and we really need that support quickly and urgently. And that makes it difficult for those of you, those of you out there who are legal, who want to be able to support small business, but don't know a great deal about the businesses that you're engaging with. So today we're going to be talking to Ursula Hogburn. Now, um, Ursula is a co-founder of Legal Vision and a co-founder of the Zero Emission Sydney North Incorporated, which assists um, businesses, amongst others, in sustainable development. And she's going to be teaching us about the importance of, of good legal counsel, um, and not necessarily when you need it most, but perhaps in your everyday business activity when you've got a chance to really sit down and think about the different aspects that you should be covering yourself. She's also going to be talking today about sustainability and ways that we can um, access really great programs that are available to us as consumers and businesses out there uh, and give us some top tips on how to engage with those. Welcome to the show, Hasila. Hi, Alexi. Thank you very much for having me. Now, um, we have been, uh, we've been sort of traipsing around one another for a, a little while, uh, probably a few years now amongst the networking groups that we attend. Yes. And we've been talking about having you on the program for a while. Um, and it's great to have you on the show because I'm, I'm really keen to talk about uh, contractual law. Mm-hmm. Um, because, as I said, it's it's probably something we should put in place first mm-hmm. as a business rather than as a knee-jerk reaction or as a reactive concept when we go, oh, my goodness, 
Um, I've been pressured into this relationship with a supplier mm. or a contractor. I don't feel comfortable, so now I've got to get something in place really quickly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, do you mm-hmm. see that a lot with enga- when you're engaging with small businesses? Uh, yes, we do. In fact, uh, one of the first phone calls we get is unfortunately where something's gone wrong. Uh, so uh, you know, there might be a supplier relationship, it might be a client relationship, uh, might be an employment relationship, and unfortunately, often one of the first calls is something's gone wrong and we don't have any terms, what do we do? And small businesses are so unique. I mean, everybody uh, you know, behaves differently, even if they're in the same sort of industry. Mm. So trying to very quickly get to know how a small business operates um, and functions and then trying to put something in place to protect that business, that must be awfully difficult. What would be um, a really great tip that you would give people as to when to engage with legal counsel as a small business? A great tip is if you you have the terms, so if you've got the legal written terms, then you set the terms. So when someone comes to you and says, I want this, I want that, if you're in a position to say, great, here's a quick summary of the... What, what, what I'll actually do mm. or I'll actually sell and here's my legal terms attached, the chances are they're going to use your terms and make very few amendments. And what you've got in there is not only what's required by law but it's all these extra things to help you. Um, really simple example. Uh, say you sell watches and the consumer law says um, the client can get a refund if the watch is faulty but the watch says that it's water-resistant and they take it into five metres of water and the watch shouldn't have gone in that deep. It's actually not waterproof. Mm. So you can set the terms that say, this is fine, this isn't, this is fine, this isn't, or this is how I do things, this isn't. And it saves uh, so much. uh, It's clear, it's on your terms and it saves a lot of time and hassle down the track if it's just set out clearly from the start. It's really topical at the moment that we're, we're hearing a lot from Kate Carnell's office and Cosboa about um, the relationship with larger companies and mm. payment terms. Yes. Um, and that's almost something that keeps cropping up when you talk to small yes. businesses all the time. Mm. You mentioned that, you know, they have to accept or they, they should be accepting what you offer, but quite often we get completely superseded by whatever mm. the big boys want to do with mm. our contracts. If they want to rip them up and pay us after three months, yes. so be it. Have we got much wiggle room with that, uh, mm. apart from just, you know, saying I'm not taking the job yeah. unless you meet my criteria for payment terms, yeah. or are we are pretty much stuck with it until legislators do something yeah. about it? Uh, it's a really good question because the law changed to benefit small businesses a little while ago. So in the past, there was consumer law to help you know, everyday people buying you know, as, as purchasers. But recently, that was broadened, and so small businesses get that protection as well when they're going into contracts with large companies. So some of the terms that large companies used to just have as their standards are now not able to be enforced. So it's a fairer contract for small business. Uh, for example... A clause that says the large company can change the terms when it wants. That's now seen as unfair. Mm. Is that actually illegal or is it just sort of some binding suggested agreement? No, that's actually um, it's unfair contracts. Mm. The, the scope of protection to say that contract is unfair has expanded 
and small businesses can now say, you know, no, you're actually not allowed to impose certain terms on us. It neatly brings me around to contractual law in general. And like, mm. uh, uh, this is a really good example and a clear example. And, and so was your example before about why it's important to have a think about your relationship with all your stakeholders and then um, move into the space and have all these robust systems around you. If nothing else, it almost makes you look a little bit more professional. Oh, look, that is one of the, uh, you know, a really key reason for a smaller business who wants to do business with a larger business. Um, I remember a really early client uh, had some quite specific uh, security hardware and uh, the Banking Royal Commission was on and he managed, this client managed to land this great potential deal with one of the big four banks. And they said, great, send us your terms. And what this company had previously been using was pretty simple and wasn't wasn't going to cut it with one of the big four banks. Mm. So in a really short time frame, we put together something that would be what the big four banks were used to seeing, made the business look much you know, bigger and more competent than it was, um, and he won the deal, which was fantastic. And that, that's, a, that's a really good point about, we were talking about the beginning of the program about when to engage, um, and I think it's really important when you're going out to tender or you are, you are, you're, you're seeking to apply for a big job somewhere, mm. that that almost becomes part of your application. Mm. If you're sending out something and it goes, hey, if you want to engage with me, um, you get this, I get that, mm. that's the warm and fluffy stuff. Mm. Meanwhile, in the background, there's also this little contract that I'm going to attach yes. to my email as well that just because yes. you've seen it, then you agree to it and if yes. you continue to engage with me. And all of that, it makes you look better yes. and more professional and and. Yeah, you, you want to you be seen that way if you're dealing with... Because yes. it gives them reassurance, doesn't it? Yes. At the end of the yes. day. Yes, yes. And that's also a good point in terms of how easy it can be to slot in. Because all of the communication is about the commercial terms. You know, it's, it's this scope, it's this level of quality, it's this speed, it's this time frame. And when we've agreed those 10 key points, by the way, here's my legal terms. Mm. And it's... Uh, so you've got them ready to go. You're not scrambling around trying to find them. And you've even got them in the first place to send rather than not send. And it's it's smooth, it's slotting in at the right time, and it's just not a big deal to say, and also here are the legal terms. And also, um, I think it's really robust when you're sending mm. out um, even an initial email about, mm. okay, well, here's an agreement, here's mm. a sponsorship proposal. Mm. Um, I'm going to put a little line in there going, and by the way, um, you know, should we engage or should we have a mm. further conversation? I'll also send you my legal terms. Mm. And that way they know, oh, okay, so this is something that's They've given a lot of thought mm. to. It's not something mm. they've just thrown on an A4 piece of paper. Yeah. Actually, there's another example when you're speaking of sponsorship where that's incredibly useful. It's those preliminary discussions where you, the big company or the other company may or may not engage you. And you might, if you're a service business or a manufacturing business, you might be suggesting brand new things, innovative things. You might disclose, you might be creating ideas for them. And, of course, there's no intention of them having any ability to use those ideas unless they engage you. But we've heard more than one story about those preliminary uh, idea-generating conversations not proceeding into a business relationship and some of those ideas being used. Whereas if you quite early on say, yeah, happy to have those chats, let's see what we can create, but by the way, here's my terms, and the terms say... Everything we discuss is confidential. Everything I raise is owned by me. 
you've got protection from that very first coffee meeting. That, that's, and that's absolutely fantastic. Once again, another great point for thinking about these things from an IP perspective. Mm, because, yes. I mean, we sit there and we go, I can't afford to pay the trademark fees, although those have been reduced recently, on, on my idea. I don't even know, do I do the logo? Mm. Do I do the concept? Do mm. I do the recipe? What am I going to protect? Yes. But in a way, even though you don't, own the IP as far as ASIC's concerned. Let's not even talk about the fact that it mm. takes them months to get back to you anyway. Um, but you can do, that can give you some level of protection yes. about your ideas. Yes. I hadn't even thought of that. Yes, yes, yes. And particularly for services businesses, we've mm. seen um, you know, larger companies say, you know, could you consult to us? Uh, how would you do this? What do you think of this? How would you solve this? And some incredibly valuable IP being generated by kind of individual and small team experts and then if it doesn't proceed into a paid relationship, then the idea generator is at real risk of not getting paid for some of their concepts. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's some really interesting ideas about where and how to set up those, I guess, contractual... Not even, is it contractual if nobody's signing anything? I mean, how do you get around that with, a, uh, with an agreement? That's a really good question too. So you can... It's called acceptance by conduct. So you can say to them sure I'm happy to keep talking having those coffees here's the terms of our chats so it's called acceptance by conduct if they proceed to meet with you then they have accepted the terms that you have sent them so simply by continuing the email conversation yes or or meeting yep and that's not that's not sneaky uh no, no because you say straight away you know here are the terms and all your it also then depends on how fair the terms are so if you said um, if you said something outrageous, it might be questioned. But all you're saying is, all the ideas that I present are owned by me, and you can't use them unless they're in a legal relationship. So it's 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 fair terms that you're imposing. And speaking of fair terms, and and you know, an understanding that's mutual and mm. mutually beneficial. Mm. That's why maybe not creating this document by yourself is a great idea. Yes. <laughs> like, don't try yes. and be a lawyer. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, yes. Because I think you're right. Like the, the bigger companies, the people you're engaged with, they're going to see through it pretty quickly. Yes. And again, to add strength to it, uh, yes. you know, a good, I, I'm assuming a good legal counsel will say, well, if anybody's got any questions of this, yes. pass on my and email and the they can ask questions. logo on it, law yes. firm's name. Yeah. It does give you that kind of strength and gravitas mm. as well. Yes. Mm. Also... We can be bad cop, which is incredibly useful. You know, uh, say it is at this idea generation stage and someone's like, oh, great, now meet with the CEO and tell us all your ideas, the implication being for free. You know, you'd love to, but your lawyer just requires you to do this. <laughs> yeah. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get bad cop um, on, on, on in on this email, and um, yes. and then we'll uh, we'll have a chat. Yes. No problem. Yep. And so you're still commercial and forward thinking and innovative, but the lawyer slots in to be the person that just gets a couple of essentials done. I love it. L- let's let's have a quick chat about uh, the sort of contracts that we typically recognise as small businesses. So um, ones that you might have with uh, a contractor that you have or a supplier mm-hmm. or obviously the payment terms one is, is, is something that's talked about a lot. But why is it important to have... Um, a supplier agreement in place with people who come and support you in your business and I guess from their perspective they share ideas as well mm. so how do you protect yourself as the client mm. um, in that supplier arrangement say with a consultant or a service-based person yep. um, well if it was say a manufacturing relationship cover that first um, so if it's a manufacturing relationship you're having something 
you're having one of your ideas created as a product, mm. one of the key things you want to do is protect your intellectual property. And so they're manufacturing that product for you and can't possibly manufacture it for anyone else. And that could be anything from you know, organic skincare to um, tech hardware you know, to a special kind of, you know, new bulletproof fabric, mm. you name it. If it's something innovative, what you've created, your formula, your recipe is incredibly valuable and you want to make sure that they're not manufacturing that formula or something similar for anyone else. You then want to go into specifics of quality and time frame um, because you can't run your business from a sales perspective unless you can guarantee a certain quality and a certain time frame to get your uh, distribution and flow. Mm. Um, so protecting intellectual property, quality control and time frames for delivery are some of the key parts to, say, a manufacturing agreement. Um, and then if you kind of continue down that supply chain, you might be having something manufactured, but you're not directly selling it to the public. Mm. You, know, you might be selling it via a distribution relationship. Um, you know, there are very well-established distributors that have relationships with you know, some of the big retail outlets and you don't want to go and recreate those. You just want to... Yeah, tap into know, their knowledge. Exactly. Yeah. Monetise your idea, not try and create a whole new retail distribution network. Yeah. So what kind of things might you be looking at there? Uh, one key issue is, are they going to be allowed to sell similar products or not? Or are they going to be kind of an exclusive representative for your brand? Mm. Um, are they going to have a territory or not? And particularly, what happens if they start underperforming? Because if you've signed up exclusively with them and they're just not able, that company's just not able to sell your product like you expected, what ability do you have to get out of that relationship? Mm. Um, and either go direct or appoint another distributor. Yeah, so it's almost like you have to think of the entire chronological process from yes. manufacture to distribution yes. to yes. the sales relationships yes. that these people have with the end distributor. Yes. Almost. And then at the end, the consumer law aspect of the product hitting yes. that end consumer. Yes. It's a it's a complex chain of events, isn't yes. it, when you're, when you're manufacturing? Yes. And it doesn't matter if you're doing something, um, I guess... Like you said, you know, you're producing organic face cream that's mm. suddenly getting bigger and you want to start mm. distributing, mm. or you're a huge, well-known, established brand. Everybody needs to be looking at these um, contracts continuously. Yes. How frequently would you suggest that any contract in your business needs to be revised? Yeah. Well, that's a good point because I was actually about to give good news that once, once the essential parts are in place... Um, for example, this is the quality, this is what we do if the quality is not so good, this is what we do if there's a fault, um, this is the time frame, this is what we do if there are time frame issues. You'll probably check, you'll probably build into the contract looking at the commercials each year, you know, is the price right, is the discount right, how's the volume discount, etc. But you actually shouldn't really be amending the legal terms. So once the legal terms are in place, they're quite possibly robust for many years. You know, this is the a genuinely strong investment in certainty and you know, that, that should be able to last quite a few years. If it's done well. Yes. And, and that yes. goes back to the original point I was making at the beginning of the show. Don't do this when everything's gone to poo and then the, the, the legal counsel has to do things hurriedly or not really understand your business very well. You've also <laughs> often lost your leverage. 
Yes. Um, once you start getting into he said, she said, um, any kind of dispute, it's a totally different relationship. The most leverage you have in terms of getting it right is before you actually sign on the dotted line and commit to each other. Yeah, it makes you look professional. It makes you look more organised and and efficient and robust yourself. Yes. Plus, you've got a better standing if everything does uh, become a he said, she said kind of situation a bit later on. Yes. Indeed. You're also potentially helping the other side. If they're um, a medium-sized business rather than a massive corporate, they may or may not have good terms themselves anyway. And so a lot of it's just clarity. You know, what will we do if this happens? What will we do if that happens? And once you work it out in the initial stages, you then both know. And so if the thing comes up, you know the solution. Mm. Um, so it's it's just, okay, oh, now we do this, now we do that. Mm. So um, even if in a bad situation happens, everyone knows yes. what goes on and yes. what the conditions are and what the situation will become. Yes, mm. yes, yes, mm. yep. Look, we might take a quick break here on Small Biz Matters. And when we come back after the break, I want to talk to you more about uh, different kind of contracts that small businesses can put in place and what stages they should be thinking about. And then maybe about, you know, okay, if you don't have anything in place and then everything does go to the proverbial, then then how can you um, support your business best? You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM. We'll be back after this. Um, So... Today we are talking all about, uh, I guess we're talking about the legal ramifications of running a small business. They are important. It's an important aspect of setting it up. And as uh, our lovely guest Ursula mentioned at the beginning of the program, it's not something that people really think about when they're doing their business plan, which is unfortunate. You know, we have great accounting or financial advisors around us. We'll have mentors from our industry. We might even engage with someone who's an awesome sales and marketing website, social media guru. But it's not until um, we get into trouble or things become um, untoward with a relationship with a stakeholder that we really think about the fact that we need to have some good um, legal agreements in place. And it is important to think about having them beforehand, not just simple for the fact of protecting yourself legally, but also because it makes you look, well, it makes you look like the business that you are, which is providing professional or quality service goods and services um, to the end user. And, and you want to make sure that you're protected at every step of the way as well. Now, Ursula, you've got a lot of experience in this industry. You've helped many, many small businesses um, throughout the years. Take me through some of the contracts that people need to be aware of um, when they're running a business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, all the contracts I'm about to discuss Once you have them in place once, they're the kind of things you shouldn't need to look at much at all. So the the commercial things, how much does this cost, how many do you want, you tweak each time, but the actual legals should be the same every time. So any of the things I'm about to mention should last you several years at least if you get them done. So first of all, your website. There's a couple of simple things that protect your business and help your business look better established, more competent. For your website, the two key documents are a privacy policy and website terms of use. And both of these normally sit in the footer. So a privacy policy sets out what you do with any personal information you collect. So if you've got one of those you know, contact pages or you know, sign here for a newsletter pages, these days people don't just want to give you their contact details randomly even if it's just email, and particularly not if it's more you know, more involved information like uh, date of birth or address. Or credit card details. Yes, mm. yes, mm. yeah. So if your business, so there's privacy law in Australia, 
if your business has a turnover of more than $3 million, you must have a privacy policy. And there's situations where if your turnover is less, that you also have to. But these days, on the whole, pretty much every business does because it's a simple, affordable document that gives people comfort and clarity on what are you going to do with that personal information that you're, you're collecting, how will you use it, who will you disclose it to, um, and most importantly, how will you protect it. So this is only a few pages. It's got really clear headings um, and it gives people comfort that they're your their information is safe with you. And just where do you embed that? So you've got basically a link on all your pages that says to see our privacy policy, click here, and then it lives somewhere in the back end of your website it where does. people can read it if yes. they want. Yes, yes. So people tend to have just a, a hot link saying privacy policy in their footer, and you particularly want it on any page where you collect personal information mm. because people are going to... And then on those, those pages you can say, you know, collection of personal information is subject to our privacy policy, and they can... They just hit the same link to see that privacy policy, which can sit somewhere. And like you website. said, you produce it once and it wouldn't actually need to be adjusted for very long. Correct. I for think years. For, for, yeah. for, for the foreseeable yes. future, we're all going to have websites. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and it's only if the privacy law changes mm. um, that you'd need to, to look at it. Well, can I ask you there, um, the privacy law in Australia because mm. we're always hearing about uh, like mm. the, the EU regulations yes. that were yep. huge yes. and if you have yes. any relationship with anyone which is everyone because we work and live and eat globally I, I'm just wondering yes. if does that mean that we all had to jump through a couple more hoops and include a clause about the EU thing on there or is it really only if you're directly engaged with people? If you have personal information about European Union citizens so, you know, you've got their phone numbers, their contact details, etc. Does email count? Uh, if it can identify them, yes. Right, like in a unique way. Yeah, yes. like a unique identifier. Yeah. Um, and so, it actually, well, it didn't... It, it, it applied to larger Australian businesses, but on the whole, kind of, you know, even national Australian businesses weren't necessarily dealing with um, with Europe. But the solution was, yes, if you were collecting personal information from EU citizens, you then did need to have a privacy policy that was EU compliant. Mm. Um, you know, once again, then it was, you know, kind of a one-off cost, a one-off hassle. But once you've got it, you've got it. Yeah, but there was no turnover threshold. The EU just said no. All businesses, any size, that have personal information about the EU you know, citizens need to have an EU compliant privacy policy, and it is more extensive and detailed than the Australian requirements. And more expensive if you get it wrong. Uh, yes, mm, yes. Mm. But you know, the law firms were doing these at some you know, kind of less than a couple of thousand to give you the advice you needed and the privacy policy you needed. And once you've got it, it was pretty much set and forget in terms of having it on your website and making sure you will follow it for the foreseeable future. Yep, yep. So tell me about some other contracts mm, you've um, got to have. The other key one for your website is just a website terms of use. And that also sits in the footer. Um, and the implication is anyone, because your website is, you, you know, people almost forget it's you own it. It's the online equivalent of your shop. Mm. And just because anyone can walk into a shop or anyone can click on your website... It's still your site, your rules. And so your website terms of use protects your website intellectual property. Um, it reminds people they can't use it, they can't copy it, 
unless, for example, you've got like a social media share. Um, it also explains that your content isn't advice and no one can sue you for it. Um, and then, yes, most importantly, that, that no one can reuse it or rip it off. You do have some basic protection in copyright law, but the website terms of use reiterate that and make it very clear as well. That's a really important point, actually, because I think a lot of people have newsletters and website blogs that would have advice um, or just experiential um, uh, stories where they talk mm. about or they might interview someone mm. or someone just randomly does a podcast with mm. someone they consider to be expert and they pop it up on their website. Yes. I guess that's why it's important to have that yes. something stipulating that I am yes. not yes. A, an advisor of this sort. I am yes. not a regulated... Yes. Or you might be, you know, you, particularly if you are a lawyer or are an accountant or are a financial advisor, um, you are a, one of those professionals, but nothing on your website is actually advice. Advice uh, from an insurance perspective is that one-on-one, you know, you told me your facts, I gave you specific tailored advice. Mm. But because prevention is better than a cure, you just put that in your website in terms of use. So someone who read something on your website can't come to you down the track and say, oh, you know, I, I bought those shares and sold those shares and now I want to sue you for the you know, the loss. Yeah, because I read something on your website. Exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah. It's just, uh, even if that person could never have succeeded in a lawsuit, that kind of thing is concerning and time-consuming and expensive. Yeah. And, and stressful. It's always cheaper to have just got the legal terms in place first and say, look, sorry, it's very clear. Clause five, it's not advice. Well, it's kind of like we have insurance. Yes. Because if there's a fire, we want to know we're protected. Yes. So why don't we have legal insurance, well, if you will? That's basically the the trifecta of risk management <laughs> um, is, first of all, clarifying the, the legal terms, what you're responsible for and what you're not. And then second, have insurance. Um for example, you're a lawyer, but you don't give accounting advice. Yeah. So you state in your legal terms you're not giving any accounting advice. And then you have insurance that covers you for legal advice. And then the third limb of good business is how you actually act. Mm. So don't do the thing that you're not supposed to <laughs> don't do. Don't put yourself don't at give. risk because exactly. you're not going to be covered by any legal contract if you're yes. criminal, for example. <laughs> yes. But, yes, the, the legal contract, the insurance... And then good professional conduct. If you get all those three right, you're hopefully in a very sound place. And then, of course, with running a business, we're all very familiar with the concept of employment contracts mm. and perhaps contractor agreements where, you know, you have a supplier agreement with someone who pops in and, and supports you maybe um, in, in a cra- mm. contractual way one day a week. Just a little side note there, everyone, please be mindful of the employee versus contractor mm-hmm. um, r- relationship and making sure that, that you've explored that with either your accountant or your BAS agent or someone else who can give you advice about what that relationship is, perhaps even engage with an HR specialist so you can be absolutely sure because that is a grey area and more and more people are getting uh, picked up about the mm. the misrepresentation of what your relationship is with someone. Mm. So just a little side note. Um, so you've got the people that sort of physically come in or work for you. That's mm. that's a pretty stock standard thing that's been around for a while. Mm. Um, and then when we talked about the, the supply chain relationships and making sure that you're protecting yourself along the way. Have I missed anything? Mm. Um, no, look, just that it's a really good point. So you know, an employee works in your business and a contractor is running their own business is the is a really kind of clear distinction. But how that plays out in practice 
can be quite blurred. For example, what's the difference between a casual employee who just does things ad hoc compared to a contractor? So we recommend people use actually government tools. There's um, business.gov and the ATO. Both have questionnaires you can work through to say, this is how this person is working. Mm. Are they an employee or a contractor? Um, Lawyers, uh, employment lawyers can advise on that as well. But... Um, we should always be going. We should always be looking at the same set of criteria in terms of the government guidance and the ATO guidance. And don't forget about the um, at the state level. There is also workers' mm. compensation tools as yes. well, which can have slightly different questions. Yes. So just to protect yourself, yes. I guess do all the questionnaires, mm. and then actually print it as a PDF because yes. that will date and timestamp it. Yes. And if you write down the name of the person that you Save had in it. mind as you yes. were doing it, just yes. save that in your employee yeah. files because yeah. then later on, if you're questioned, same. yes, you can say. Look, I did my due diligence. Yes. I followed. I did as many of these as I could, and this is what I determined. Yes. So you know, if if you don't think it's correct, then you go back and check how you were wording yes. your your calculator yes. tools. And that's exactly um, for everyone listening. Um, Alexia and I are talking about some free online uh, quizzes, tests you can basically take, and the ATO and the government say if you answer these questions truthfully save the answer, whether the person's an employee or whether the person's a contractor, and that gives you protection if later down the track for some reason there's an issue. Because any calculator you do on mm-hmm. the, the government websites and you mm-hmm. can prove that you've done it yes. is actually, uh, my understanding is that it's actually advice that they've given and that if you follow it, you've kind yes. of shown that you've done due yes. diligence. Yes, yes. And then from that, it will, it will basically spit out the answer, is this person an employee or is this person a contractor? And then there's actually reasonably different contract behind the scenes. So an employment agreement covers things like remuneration and you know, all of the leave entitlements, there's sick leave, there's annual leave, etc. All of those things apply to an employee, don't apply to a contractor. Um, redundancy entitlements applies to an employee, not a contractor. Uh, dismissal, probation, um, all things, you know, you must follow employment law if the person's an employee, whereas different rules apply if it's a contractor. And then you can talk about, you know, the payment terms as well, so you're protecting them as well so they can feel a little bit more confident in the relationship. Yes, yes. We might just take a quick break here on Small Biz Matters and just go to a couple of community service announcements. And when we come back, Ursula, I wanted to talk to you about this um, this passion project, if you will. That's a term I found out the other day at a networking event, passion project. <laughs> and, uh, and we're going to talk more about that and people can learn about another aspect of sustainability, both in their consumer lives as well as their business lives. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM, Alexi Boyd with Small Biz Matters. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Small Biz Matters on Triple H 100.1 FM and across the community radio network. You're listening to Alexi Boyd. And we have another fantastic guest with us today who is imparting wonderful knowledge in her hat as a contractual legal genius when it comes to small businesses, she's rolling her eyes at her. But everyone who sits across the panel from me is a genius. I am simply the facilitator. Uh, Ursula, let's talk about the other hat you wear that you're very passionate about um, and you support others in the community around you and you are, you're an educator, um, you know, you're, you're, you're there to support the, the program in whatever professional capacity that you can, but importantly, you use your standing in and your reputation in the community to be able to um, broadcast what these fabulous projects are. So tell me about the Four Pines Community Solar Project, something that you 
yeah, you're it, so it, a great example of, of some innovation happening in our area and sustainability yes. information yes, uh, innovation yes, yes. as well, which is super exciting. So yes. yeah, tell me about it. Yes, yes, thank you. you now what what we're seeing across you know, our area from kind of lower North Shore to Pittwater, uh, North Shore, Northern Beaches is people are much more conscious of sustainability from an economic and jobs perspective, as well as saving money. Um, and a great example of one thing that we're seeing businesses doing is uh, combating their emissions and also combating costs by getting solar. Um, and in the past, uh, solar was kind of more complex and more prohibitively expensive, but it's just so much more mainstream now and there's so much more certainty about you know which are good panels, which are good inverters, which are good systems. Um, we're really seeing it take off. And project I wanted to mention just for a bit of kind of uh, sharing something exciting that happened in our community and also for possibly some inspiration was Four Pines Brewery going solar on their rooftop. Hmm. How and why? Um, so Four Pines Brewery, it's a sizable company. They put on a 100 kilowatt system that was going to supply or that will supply renewable energy for their brewery and their office space in Brookvale. Right. And this is one of their steps towards being run on 100% solar or renewable energy by 2025, only six years away. So why is this unusual? This isn't just a company that said, great, we're going to spend a bunch of money and get solar. We can afford the initial upfront investment. We're going to get the returns over years Mm -hmm. like you have to with your residential Mm -hmm. house. This project was 100% funded by investors, including Four Pines friends, Four Pines clients, Four Pines employees and Northern Beaches locals. But, Why? Why were they yeah. so invested in it? Well, yeah, and this, this wasn't... The, you know, many people would have been happy to contribute if it was, say, a charity project, hmm. for, say, a DV shelter. But this is a business. And these people are actually investors. They technically own the solar panels... And Four Pines pays for it and the investors get a return. Oh, I see. Mm. So it's like yeah. Four Pines... They're solar investors. Yeah, right. I see. Yes. But Four Pines yes. has got the real estate, I guess, the the um, oh, the roof space to be able to put these things on there and it's like an investment into the infrastructure that'll yes. pay back. Yes. Huh. Yeah. Yep. Absolute kind of win-win for the company and all of the investors. Um which was great. And in terms of how accessible was this, um, and I'll explain how they did it soon, but people could buy in for as little as $250 a share. So this was genuinely community solar, which was great. Um, you know, yeah. So there was a not-for-profit community energy group called Clear Sky Solar, and they set up the trust for people to invest through because legally there's actually a, a maximum number of investors you're allowed to have on these projects. So all of the smaller investors came through one, mm-hmm. which was the trust. Oh, which didn't have any limitation on the number oh, right. of... Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because technically with the trust you can only have 20 investors. and But they Four Pines actually wanted a whole lot of small investors. And so all of those small investors were able to come through the trust. And... They had to raise about 120000 and a company called Pingala stepped in to be the principal investor to raise 75%. It 
And then Pingala had this fantastic offer where people could buy in for as little as $250. And then the deal with Four Pines was Four Pines would pay for the solar electricity generated for 10 years post-installation, and that revenue would repay the community investors. Um, and the return is aimed to be between 5 and 8%, and that will be paid annually. Wow. Yes. And you know yep. what? Sunshine's not going anywhere. Yes. And, yes. If, and like you said at the beginning, we're at the point where an investment into some solar um, is, is at the point where it's going to be quite good quality in terms yes. of the innovation and the, yes. and the actual tech. And yes, yes, and so, durability. Yeah, yes, that's yes, some yes. pretty good returns yes. right there. Yes, it is. And look, is this the first of its kind? Uh, this, the way this was put together with the different moving parts um, basically was, yes, which is why it, it's so exciting because it was a Northern Beaches company and a really um, positive target to be 100% renewable by 2025. And it's not just, you know, for the big companies that can afford $120,000 worth of capital costs, which is quite a lot. This this way of structuring it, um, let them harness the enthusiasm of their employees, their clients, their friends, um, so everyone could participate as well. And have a return. Exactly. It's and not just altruistic. All, it, wasn't, it, was, you know, it wasn't even just altruistic. Yeah. They're actually getting a good return as well. Yes. Okay, so explain yes. to me why this isn't happening all over the place. I'm thinking of areas in Hornsby where we've got the big industrial estates yes. with massive roof space. Yes. And, and, and long-term, because initially when you said that, I thought, well, that's great. What if they go out of business? But if they're a long-term established company, yes. they probably own the property in which they're they're all, they're. they're manufacturing their goods or they've got a long-term lease. Yes, yes. Uh, then you know, why isn't this happening yes. all over? And who should be facilitating? I mean, that's a question for you. Is it is it the councils who should be going out and kind of supporting the community or is it really going to be a grassroots thing where we're just going to wait until a community hears about and goes, you know what, I think we'd like to support this. Mm. So now that we've got the legal structural mm. yes. um, process mm. there... Mm. Uh, does that mean that there's more... Will that be shared? Will, it, yes. will the project yes, be yes. shared elsewhere? Well, you are, it, a, there was a few great questions there. Why aren't we doing more? Um, because it takes more work, basically. So it's, it's far easier, one, if the business owns the building, and often they don't, it's a lease. And second, if they can just pay the capital costs up front and make that back from you know significantly lower energy bills over time. But lots of businesses don't necessarily own their premises, and lots of businesses either can't or don't want to put such a huge amount up front um, capital. So there were a few moving parts to be able to get this structure set up. But exactly like you said, once it's been rolled out once, it's so much easier to replicate. And then it just becomes awareness building. Hmm. And so great point about council. Because you know, once Four Pines has done it, look, they've publicised it. Um, but, you know, they're trying to run a brewery and do a great job of that. So... Northern Beaches Council um, and also Mossman and North Shore are all pretty proactive around sustainable development and solar. So having them knowing how these projects can be done and kind of um, providing information to businesses in the area is incredibly useful as well. Mm. Uh, you've also got the Business Chambers of Commerce 
who can be aware of these innovations and to give information about how it was structured as well. And I assume that all of the legal aspects of it are such that they can be. This could be used anywhere in Australia. I mean, you know, yes. this is this is a broadcast yes. program worldwide. Yes. So if anybody's listening out there and wants to know yes. more, yes. Um, tell me, Ursula, where, where can they? Who can they contact, or where can they find out more information? Uh, do they contact the councils involved or yourself, and you can forward them in the right direction? Uh, yeah, look, very welcome to contact me. The for this particular structure. Um, Clear Sky and Pingala were two of the main players. Um, but yes, what was rolled out here could definitely be rolled out across Australia. Um, and the reason I'm so interested in it is several of us have put together Zero Emission Sydney North, which is a not-for-profit, looking at what are the key reasons we aren't doing things like going clean energy, going solar, and how can we make that as easy as possible for businesses and people? So we will be doing information sessions and events, not just about why something's a good idea, but how do we do it and those paths to action. Well, we'll definitely get all those up on the event calendar on smallbizmatters.com.au. And if you're one of those people in the community who is very well connected, uh, passionate about becoming more um, sustainable, both as a business or as a a human, (laughs) um, then do get in touch um, with Ursula. We're going to pop all the details about where you can get information on our Facebook page and I'll pop it on LinkedIn as well. So if you need more information, then um, it it sounds like a great project and and Mm -hmm. congratulations for being so involved in both of those things, both the Four Pines project as well and um, it's, look I think it's it's um, it, it needs people, it needs community leaders to be forthright and saying no, no this is something we need mm-hmm. and it's economics, economically yes. sustainable yes. and I think it's that's innovative the big... and it's jobs and yes. economic boost yes. and good for the companies that do it and a return yes. for the investors Yes, I mean you know yes. you might struggle in the last two years to get that sort of return mm. on Sydney property to be honest yes <laughs> yes yes yep. no it's, I mean look we, we our area is so beautiful we've got land we've got sun we've got incredibly innovative businesses and we've got forward thinking people um, you know, we think we can be there's a couple of electorates that are standouts uh, in rural areas for their sustainability, but we think this area can be an absolute standout as a kind of you know inner city type area that's also a real leader in sustainability. There's absolutely no reason why not. Look, thank you so much for pe- for coming on the program today, Ursula. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, not at all about small business legal counsel and contractual law and all those aspects. Now, um, my listeners out there, if you've missed any of today's program, you can of course catch up via smallbizbatters.com.au where we have over 150 podcasts for you to listen to at your leisure. They're also available on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can get in contact with any of our guests, find out more um, and also find a script for each of our programs on the website too. Make sure you subscribe to smallbizmatters.com.au in the process. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ursula. It's been fantastic here for having you finally on the program and we'll look forward to having you um, on the program maybe in a few months' time to talk even more detail about um, IP. Let's talk about IP. Wow, that's a, that's, a, that's a whole hour right there. Thank you, everyone, for joining me on Small Biz Matters across Triple H 100.1 FM and the Community Radio Network. We'll be back next week with another fabulous guest. Thanks, Ursula. Thank you.